1: Attention, all listeners on this frequency. Stand by for an important announcement. Welcome to Medic to Medic Podcast, the weekly podcast for EMS providers, EMS leaders, EMS medical directors, and others involved in or those who have an interest in emergency medical services. Ladies and gentlemen, here's your host, Steve Cohen.
2: You today from the Raleigh Studios, south of North Carolina and Florida, Mick Gunderson. Mick has been involved in emergency healthcare for over 40 years in various leadership positions. We're going to have him tell us about his background. Mick and I met way back when in the early 90s when I was working at Medical College of Pennsylvania for Dr. Steve Davidson. Mick was a great person to talk to about education, about quality improvement and leadership. Mick, welcome to Medic to Medic podcast.
1: Thanks, Steve. Appreciate being on the podcast.
2: I appreciate you joining me right after vacation. I know sometimes it's very difficult to uh, get back into the swing of things, but again, I appreciate your time. So tell our listeners about your background.
1: So, uh, yeah, my, my U.S. career started uh, as a, uh, an Army medic, uh, 91 Bravo, back in uh, 75. And uh, so uh, after I finished my uh, military service, I ended up uh, working for a little private ambulance company in in St. Petersburg, Florida. And around that time, the uh, legislation wasn't all in place uh, uh, surrounding EMS in Florida. So I was able to, uh, uh, by by virtue of my Army medical training, uh, there were uh, bridge programs or grandfather programs might be the better way to phrase it, uh, to take uh, former military medics and bring them into civilian EMS. So I took advantage of those opportunities and uh, got my uh, EMP and, and paramedic certifications uh, that way, and then uh, just uh, continued my career with uh, different uh, agencies around Central Florida, and uh, eventually uh, ended up as the uh, Director of uh, Research and Education for uh The Pinellas County, Florida EMS system, and uh, worked there in in different capacities, both in the field and as I I mentioned, uh, uh, in in that position working in the medical director's office. And it was during that uh, same time frame that uh, I would work on my days off at medical school uh, in Tampa in an oxygen transport physiology lab. Got very interested in academic medicine uh research publication uh those sorts of things and uh got involved with doing some resuscitation research uh and and Steve it was it was interesting because at at that point again we're now talking uh uh, later in the 70s uh there wasn't really a venue to publish uh, uh EMS research there you know was uh Journal of the American College of Emergency Physicians, I don't think it had even become Annals of Emergency Medicine yet. Uh, Emergency medicine was uh, was just becoming a specialty, so things were still very uh, undeveloped, let's say, uh, in that area. But there certainly wasn't uh, much of any funding uh, available uh, to to fund EMS-specific research and people that were interested in that area. Had to publish it in in other venues, so it, it occurred to me one day. Well, you know, what would be involved in starting an, an EMS uh, academic medical journal? And uh, <laughs> there is a, an engineer I worked with at the medical school who uh, had this new computer, a, a Macintosh, a uh, little Mac Plus, and uh, had this program called PageMaker, and another uh, another program that just come out, Microsoft Word 1.0, and uh, we decided we would just uh, start start this journal. So, in, in kind of a very uh, garages, garage-ish sort of mode, uh, had the opportunity really to start the first peer-reviewed uh, academic medical journal uh, in, in EMS. It was called the Tampa Bay EMS Journal, and uh, did that for about a year and then made it a national journal. Uh, called uh, Journal of Pre-Hospital Medicine, and uh, it attracted the attention of uh, the, uh, the new, newly formed National Association of EMS Physicians. They were interested in doing a journal. And uh, there was an, another journal uh, kind of in this same space uh, called the, uh, the Journal of the World Association for Disaster and Emergency Medicine that uh, Peter Saffer uh, from uh, Pittsburgh uh, very well-known uh, resuscitation researcher, uh, and uh, R. Adams Cowley, uh, the guy who started shock trauma in Maryland, uh, they were the editors, and they were, uh, Peter Sapper's office was uh, nearby Ron Stewart's office, who was the first president for uh, the EMS Physicians Group, or NEMSP. So uh, I guess they had a conversation, decided to, uh, to kind of work together and do a joint journal, and they My journal was already up and running, so uh, uh, the person they designated to become the editor uh, reached out to me, and uh, we did it as a a freeway effort between my little 501c3 that I set up to manage the journal and uh, NMSP and uh, this uh, World Emergency and Disaster Medicine Group, and that's how pre-hospital and disaster medicine uh, got started, which is, is still in print. Few years later, NEMSP split off and started their own journal, Pre-Hospital Emergency Care, but uh, that's a little bit of the backstory on, on how that got started. So, with uh, being involved with that project kind of uh, got me on the radar of, of some other, other folks and uh, other opportunities presented themselves and uh, ended up going from Pinellas County uh, to rural metro. Uh, they had just went public, and I got recruited to be their national uh, quality education and research director. Stayed there for uh, not a real long time, uh, a little under two years, and uh, uh, left the company and uh, started my own consulting practice. It was called Institute for uh, Pre-Hospital Medicine. Started uh, one of the early EMS web portal sites called the Mobile Healthcare Forum, and with that, actually started doing. They, they didn't call them podcasts back then. There was just some online uh, radio stations, so to speak. Radio 365, I think, was the platform I used and actually uh, did what today would be called uh, podcasting. Had a little bit of a narrative on uh, how the mobile healthcare forum was evolving, which would now be called a blog. But uh, this is, again, back in 97. 98, uh something like that when when all that was taking place so uh, a few years after that merged my consulting practice with uh, with a colleague of mine uh, Dave Lindbergh and uh, that uh, became health analytics did that for several years went through some uh, uh, Organizational changes and uh, you know changed uh, into other other venues, uh, other forms of the consulting practice. We did. so we we hired Todd Hatley, and uh, later on, Todd and I split off and uh, formed a company called Integral Performance Solutions. Still doing EMS systems consulting and uh, uh, quality management work. Started teaching Six Sigma and Lean and those sorts of things, and uh, did that for uh, quite a while up until uh, early two thousand. 14 and uh, came to work for the the Heart Association uh, around then. One of my clients, though, with uh, Integral Performance Solutions uh, was an EMS system that uh, covered the Grand Rapids metropolitan area, uh, Kent County EMS, and uh, they had actually uh, engaged me to become their executive director.
2: Your journey has uh, prompted a whole bunch of questions. What an interesting career path you've had. First of all, let's talk about how would you decide to go into the Army and become an Army medic?
1: the offer. And the uh, Army recruiter, uh, upon discovering my background in photography, they had this program called Stripes for Skills. And so after boot camp, uh, since they didn't have to train me as a photographer, uh, I was supposed to become an E-5. And uh, there was they were going to make me a medical photographer at this hospital in Berlin. Uh, there was some problem building the hospital. never happened. And uh, so they ended up reassigning me as a uh, a, a medic, uh, in, uh, West Germany, uh, and while we were waiting for this hospital build situation resolved, they sent me to medical corpsman school to give me a little bit of medical background. Went to Fort Sam Houston in San Antonio and just loved it. Just absolutely loved the medicine. Loved, uh, the whole thing. I'd always been really interested in science, but that's how I ended up, uh, in that regard and, uh, when I came out of the Army, I just went uh, went into EMS rather than uh, going back into uh, filmmaking and photography.
2: That's an interesting path to EMS, uh, one of the most uh, unique stories we've heard uh, career-wise uh, on this podcast. But you also did it pretty well if you're going to catch up with uh, Dr. Stewart, Dr. Sapphire, and Dr. Colley at Shock Trauma. Talk about those interactions with those three, because those are three... <laughs> well-known leaders in emergency medical services. And my past is with Dr. Stewart as he was my medical director in the city of Pittsburgh.
1: Yeah, so uh, it, it was really all facilitated by the, uh, uh, the journal. And with, with the journal just getting started, I ended up doing a, a lot of the writing myself. And it's important to, to understand the context. This was an academic journal. There wasn't uh, a lot of research going on. So there were more scholarly articles, I guess you might characterize them as critical reviews of literature and, uh, and things like that. And uh, so I, I, I guess that uh, they, they liked the work that we were doing and appreciated the initiative of uh, getting a journal started. I think they were a little taken aback that I was still riding backwards on a fire truck at the time, so to speak. Anyway, it uh, just kind of, like I said, opened up uh, a lot of doors for me, much in the same way that uh, blogging and, and podcasting is for, for a lot of folks uh, now. But that being said, the, uh, the early interactions were, were quite interesting, is that, uh, you know, picture yourself as a, you're still working as a medic, you know, riding backwards on a fire truck or on, uh, riding around in an ambulance with your day job, so to speak, and then on your off-duty time. You're interacting with, uh, you know, these world class, uh, you know, about legends really in uh, in the field of emergency and critical care medicine. It was was pretty heady stuff, <laughs> to, to be quite honest with you, a little overwhelming at times. But uh, wow, what what an opportunity to to have a head chance to, uh, to to really talk and interact and, and work on projects with. Uh, those folks and the rest of the uh, people that were on uh, the editorial board back then. It was really kind of a, a who's who uh, of, of emergency medicine back
2: then. Tell our listeners about the struggles you had giving that first article and the journal up and rolling. You make it sound so easy, was it?
1: it? It was more of a, how can I say, a psychological challenge of, you know, feeling that you're up for it. Now, keep in mind, I'm, I'm working in this, oxygen transport physiology lab at the medical school, and this was while I'm attending college at USF, and this was uh, or University of South Florida in Tampa, and this was a work-study job, and like I said, I, I, I got into EMS, loved it, loved the medicine, uh, was always interested in science, and was really taken aback on how primitive EMS was in terms of the science, And uh, that was very, very frustrating to me. I I just didn't understand why that was. Uh, And and it took a while for me to kind of wrap my head around the idea that uh, EMS not only being new to me was new to the world. (laughs) In many regards, EMS wasn't that old back then. The, The challenge with the journal was trying to take an existing model, uh, for a journal in, in terms of not only the physical layout and, and appearance of the journal, but also the style of the article. So as part of my job, I was reading a lot of medical journals uh, related to the research that we were doing in the lab. And uh, so now being you know, a consumer of uh, academic medical journal articles uh, on a pretty regular basis, I had a pretty good feel for, what they were supposed to look like, what they were supposed to discuss, uh, those sorts of things. So it was then a challenge of taking that concept and translating that into EMS topics. So uh, one of the uh, early articles we did uh, was on uh, intraosseous infusions, and uh, at the time this article was written, absolutely nobody was doing this uh, out in the field. Uh, We had some stuff on rectal diazepam, and uh, there was a uh, drug that was uh, becoming popular then for uh, pre-hospital control of hypertension that we uh, since kind of ran away from along with mask pants, et cetera, called nifedipine. uh, So uh, there was a a guy who worked on the ambulance who was uh, going to school to get his PharmD, uh, and so he wrote a very scholarly uh, article. Uh, geared towards an EMS audience on on nifedipine. We had a, a critical review of uh, recent ACLS uh, standards updates with discussion of the background literature. I mentioned some of those other topics. And uh, then I had fun with uh, some editorials where I uh, was able to talk about some of my pet peeves with uh, the way continuing education was structured. There was more repetitive education rather than continuing education and, uh, uh, something I still feel pretty strongly about today, actually. Uh, but it's it, m- much like a blog, Steve. It, it provided a platform upon which you know I and others that were interested in these sorts of things could articulate our uh, our, our views about uh, what we wanted EMS to evolve into, and and try to play a role in in catalyzing those changes.
2: How was the feedback from the peers um, once I started reading the articles, as well as what kind of criticism and what kind of reaction did you have when you saw some of that criticism that might have came um, based on something, especially on the, your op-ed pieces? Yeah, so uh,
1: it, it was funny, Steve. Uh, there, were several people had commented me and. In, in one way or another, the, the basic message that uh, that's all nice, Nick, it's, it's pretty nerdy, and you and probably, you know, seven other people around the country might be interested in reading this. At, at that point in time, they might not have been that far off, uh, actually. But uh, I felt pretty strongly about this. And my feeling was, is even if the, the audience is, is very small, my hope was that the appeal of the journal would be to the thought leaders. Uh, People who would be interested in reading this sort of stuff would be people who were interested in in EMS research, academic medicine, and probably more importantly, the growth and development or professionalization of of EMS as a a professional discipline in and of itself. And so the size of the audience, uh, I didn't really find particularly bothersome. Uh, what I did do strategically, though, is the, the original distribution plan for the journal, and this was all hard copy journals. Uh, online wasn't even an option then because the journal was starting, uh, uh, oh, and was it like 1989, something like that? And uh, so this was pre internet. Uh, so we would print up the journals, uh, do uh, several hundred copies, and most of them were distributed in the five counties surrounding the uh, the Tampa Bay area, uh, but then I uh, would send out other copies to uh, the people that, uh, you know, would now be the equivalent of my LinkedIn follow list, so people like uh, Ron Stewart and uh, Dr. Cowley and uh, uh, Norm McSwain and, and all of those, uh, those folks who, you know, your readers have probably... Uh, heard about, and uh, that's how it got the attention of MSP and the World Association for Disaster Emergency Medicine. All of a sudden, in their mailbox, they started seeing this Tampa Bay EMS Journal, uh, and kind of scratching their heads and saying, "Who in the heck is this Mick Anderson guy?" Because they they had never heard of me. I've never been to any you know any of their meetings or anything like that. So uh, the other interesting aspect of it was the advertisers. You know, so, so GEMS is out there and uh, uh, Emergency Product News and some of the, the very, very early uh, EMS trade journals. And uh, so I didn't have anywhere near the circulation that they did. But my point to the advertisers was that the audience may be small, but these are exactly the people that you want to, to reach as the, the, the thought leaders uh, the researchers that really uh, are, are having a, a hugely disproportionate impact on uh, where EMS is heading uh, both uh, scientifically and and clinically and So with that I was able to convince many of the early advertisers to come on despite the, the, the minuscule uh, Circulation numbers, so it was it was interesting uh, the, the feedback I got from uh, the Field Colleagues was mostly the, the kind of uh, snarky, nerdy <laughs> conference in many regards. But, you know, then there were people like Baxter uh, Larman out at UCLA and, and Walt Stoy uh, up in Pittsburgh. Uh, uh, and Mike Tagman uh, had been doing a, a 12-lead EKG column for GEMS and uh, Jim Eastham at UMBC and a bunch bunch of people like that from around the country uh, had been uh, very supportive uh, and uh, reinforcing to the idea, and that was enough to kind of kind of keep me going emotionally.
2: It's very interesting that your, your path with your journal and my path with the podcast is on a very similar track. I'm doing this out of passion. I'm doing this out of letting people know about EMS and also just talking to people that are involved, because I believe a lot of the podcasts out there in EMS today are really subject-based. They have great guests, but they really talk about topics and subjects, which we do here, but really nobody really talks to the provider.
0: As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. When I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply.
2: Uh, my audience is small, but it's starting to gain. Um, the guests that you met, Mike uh, Tagman, uh, Baxter Larman's is going to be an upcoming guest. Uh, he's in my editing queue as we speak. Um, and it's been pretty interesting uh, just talking to them about their their career paths and what they're doing today. So uh, it's just it's very fascinating to me on how our paths are very similar.
1: Yeah, that's why I drew the drew the analogy between uh, you know starting that print journal back then is uh, you know very similar to uh, to doing uh, blogging and podcasting today.
2: How did you deal with that criticism?
1: Uh, I, I just, you know, put it in context. I, I mean, I, I, I don't mean to be too aloof here, but it, it's it's almost like art to me. Is uh, my grandfather was an artist, and and he taught me early on that you know when he does art, he does it really for himself. Uh, it, it's it's an image or an idea that he has in his head. It's important to him, and if others like it too and are interested in, in, in buying art or commissioning art, uh, that's great. But uh, he said, you know, for the long term, you have to do it because it's something that interests you. And I kind of took that same perspective in this regard. Uh, there will always be critics no matter what you do. So uh, my, my idea was that, uh, uh, as you can relate to, uh, if you're passionate about something, you feel it's important, uh, do it. follow your passions. The, 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 listen to the criticisms to to see where uh, there may be uh, valid points, things that you can learn from, certainly. Uh, but uh, don't let the naysayers get you down uh, is is really what what, uh, what I had to to learn to do.
2: Great advice. If you had a chance to do it all over again, how would you have done this project better? Hard hard
1: to, hard to say. I mean, uh, it, it actually, in, in the end, turned out pretty well. Uh, I ended up uh, kind of stepping away from it because it just got too big for me to deal with. Uh, like I mentioned, when the, the, the journal uh, started and then uh, merged with NEMSP and the World Association for Disaster Emergency Medicine, Dems was uh, hired as the, the publisher, the the, the the auntie to stay at that poker game to continue to support uh, the effort economically uh, just quickly got beyond my means. Uh, so I wasn't able to stay in, in a business relationship uh, with, with it, uh, Was the associate editor for a while, and uh, it, it just grew so quickly uh, and, and so big uh, that, you know, I, I just kind of, really became more of just one of the other editorial board members after, after, at a period of time, uh, but then moved on to other journals. The, the thing I would probably have done differently is, is one of the, the journals that followed after that uh, was after uh, we had uh, the consulting practice Health Analytics up and running, and we started uh, something called the EMS Management Journal. Only did uh, a couple issues of that uh, before we had a a very unfortunate uh, problem with uh, one of the companies we had merged with, and uh, that became economically insolvent, and we had to kind of unplug from that. And that was about the same time we were getting uh, the National EMS Management Association started. But I, I would, in retrospect, would have found a way to keep that journal going. Uh, and that was a a management oriented academic journal rather than a clinically oriented academic journal uh, was done entirely online. And interestingly enough, uh, I'm hoping to uh, to work with NEMSMA maybe to uh, resuscitate that journal, pun intended <laughs> <laughs> to, uh, uh, to to get that going again at some point in time. So uh, I have had some conversations with with NEMSIM about that remains to be seen whether or not that'll happen, but uh, that's my hope. But that would be the thing I would do differently is found a way not to let the DMS uh, the management journal have fallen off the, uh, uh, the, the radar uh, with uh, those
2: uh, business changes that took place at Health Analytics. Mick, you are a forward thinker, you're a creator, you're an innovator. Can you describe an incident when you were so focused on an activity that you lost you know, track of time?
1: Well that that would usually happen uh when I would go into uh uh production of the journal itself and uh be actually laying out the pages and putting all the content in place. It's it's kinda like when I did photography. I enjoyed doing the shooting, but I loved working in the dark room and this was kind of the equivalent of of the dark room for the journal was the actual uh layout and production process and uh I I would just Really, kind of get my head in that space and uh, just immerse myself, and it would just time would fly by. It would start at you know eight in the morning. I'd look up and it'd be eight in the evening or something. Uh, I, I really enjoyed uh, the whole process uh, of of the journal. Uh, you know, finding the the authors, uh, encouraging them uh, to, to write the article editing along the way, but then when I would finally get the, the completed manuscript back from the reviewers, uh, and then kind of uh, putting it into final format, uh, and, and really seeing the vision physically manifest itself, uh, I, I just loved that. Uh, it was kind of, you know, the, uh, the, the pinnacle of, of the whole uh, academic creative process was finally seeing it come into print. Uh, And being able to distribute it, I I found that extremely fulfilling, but that's where uh, I would really lose complete
2: track of time. Mick Gunderson is my guest. He is the National Director of Clinical Systems in the Quality and Health Information Technology Division for the American Heart Association. Mick, you know, I've known you for a little bit, and I know you had a big interest in quality improvement. Tell us how you became very interested in quality improvement and what you think about QI today. And how it's changed.
1: So, um, you know, my my interest in quality actually uh, was synonymous with my re- interest in research. I, I fundamentally see research and, and quality as uh, very kindred spirits, so to speak. Uh, both are based on the uh, the scientific method, where you see something, uh, you Want to try to either better understand it or change it, you pose a hypothesis, you test the hypothesis, and learn from the results of that uh, experiment. And so that research background that I developed uh, working in that oxygen transport physiology lab uh, directly translated to uh, the same kinds of skills that uh, would be applicable to quality. Uh, early on, healthcare quality uh, was in many ways, uh, non-existent in in terms of uh, industrial quality models that uh, it's based upon today with the principles of, you know, people like uh, W. Edwards Deming and Joseph Duran and and those kinds of folks. Uh, It was really more oriented towards uh, risk management and utilization review. But what I – the pragmatic issue that confronted me is there really wasn't any – EMS research jobs around. <laughs> so uh, quality uh, was becoming of more and more interest to healthcare care and uh, started getting uh, some traction in the EMS space. And so that's where I could find uh, employment uh, in, in, I guess would be one way to put it. Like I said, the set that I developed uh, doing research, uh, I found directly translatable uh, into doing quality improvement. So, well, that, that's how it kind of got into quality. Uh, as far as how EMS quality has changed over the years, uh, it, it has followed the lead of, of healthcare for the most part. And as healthcare has uh, uh, began to more uh, aggressively embrace the principles of, of industrial quality management that I referred to earlier, uh, EMS has, has uh, been, been trailing along behind it. The big difference I see, though, is The the attention given to clinical quality for hospitals has been uh, dramatically impacted by the external accountability uh, with uh, uh, the CMS uh, core measures program, uh, similar from the the Joint Commission. And it wasn't until that kind of external scrutiny and public reporting uh, of uh, clinical quality uh, really came into its own that, uh, I think, hospital administration uh, started taking it more seriously and allocating and anticipate that EMS will follow a similar path. There are some, what I would call, more intrinsically motivated organizations that uh, uh, give a lot of serious attention to to clinical quality. Uh, But unfortunately, in my view, those are the minority uh, of EMS organizations in the country. Is they, they don't shun quality, but uh, it is uh, something that is done as more of an issue of because people expect them to do something uh, about it. Uh, and uh, I, I, I just don't know how else to put it. Uh, it, it isn't really given uh, a strong priority in most organizations. As EMS becomes subject to Uh, public reporting, I I anticipate seeing a similar change in EMS. Uh, Clinical quality in EMS will become a much more significant priority uh, once that uh, EMS quality results are publicly reported uh, to the communities they serve. And along with that, uh, there is a link to uh, the levels of EMS reimbursement. So when it starts impacting the organization's Uh, reputation, and political capital, uh, and it starts affecting uh, the budget in a very direct way in terms of the level of reimbursement they receive from third-party payers, Uh, then I think we're going to see a phenomenal uh, exponential increase in the uh, attention given to EMS clinical quality. But until those changes occur, uh, it's going to be more limited by the medical directors administrators and, and quality champions, so to speak, within the EMS organizations to, uh, to do it well because uh, they're intrinsically motivated uh, rather than uh, extrinsically expected to do it uh, at a higher level. And uh, unfortunately, I just see that that's where it is today.
2: If you were the QI god for EMS, you know, we always look at cardiac arrest and we look at how well we manage that what should EMS be looking at to improve our quality?
1: One of the, the most neglected areas I see in in quality uh, overall in EMS uh, is not as much technical at, as it is from a, uh, uh, a patient interaction. Or uh, I, I don't think it's the, the, the best term, but the one that people can relate to most is the the customer service level interaction—that uh, I think is significantly uh, underrated, not given near enough attention. Just that emotional and psychological uh, support uh, that we give to the patients through how we talk to them, how we interact with them, how we make them feel uh, about you know what oftentimes is the worst day of their life in, in many cases. So. That would be one thing I would place a lot more emphasis on. Uh, The hospital realm has uh, uh, patient satisfaction uh, measures that figure into public reporting and paper performance with something called HCAPs. I would uh, like to see something along those lines come into EMS sooner than later, uh, where uh, agencies are held accountable for the perception of, of patients It's a sticky situation to be sure, much like it is in emergency medicine where uh, oftentimes you have patients who are uh, not necessarily willing participants in the scenario because of the, you know, sometimes uh, ways that they got involved, whether it was uh, injured during a drug deal or, you know, speeding and getting in an accident or, you know, driving under the influence, all sorts of things like that complicate the picture. But in spite of all of that, uh, we, we still need to treat people with uh, dignity and respect, uh, make it clear to, to our patients uh, that uh, we're not part of that process. We're there to, uh, to, to address their needs and, and, uh, and help them get through this uh, unfortunate episode they find themselves in, in the midst of. Uh, but uh, aside from that, What I would uh, like to see is each of the different uh, specialty areas uh, that EMS touches, you know, surgery with with trauma and and all of the surgical emergencies and the different types of uh, medical emergencies, respiratory, cardiac, uh, endocrine, et cetera, Uh, and and more of the organizations kind of stepping up and developing uh, performance metrics that uh, clearly articulate what is it in the care of those different disease conditions uh, that you should expect our EMS providers uh, to accomplish? You know, what are those key points or key milestones that in the care of a, a patient with uh, a dissecting aortic aneurysm or a myocardial infarction or a stroke uh, or a, a severe head injury injury, uh, Uh, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, what are the key points that that need to be addressed in that care, you know, based on good, sound scientific evidence, and then translate those expectations into performance measures uh, and then uh, work with the software companies to uh, operationalize those performance measures in a way that can provide uh, accurate and timely feedback to the individual clinician as, as well as their medical directors and roll-up uh, to, you know, regional, state, and national levels to know how well as as a discipline uh, we are doing overall and then adjusting uh, educational programs and regulation standards accordingly uh, to address any gaps that emerge. But without that kind of uh, performance data to guide those decisions, uh, we're, we're largely driving blind. And uh, that's that's what I would like to see changed if uh, if I was made the, the QI king, so to speak.
2: Tell our listeners how you got to the American Heart Association because you've been publisher, editor, writer. You've been an executive director. You were in the Army. Um, what led you to the American Heart Association?
1: Well, a, a, a very uh, long-time friend... Colleague of mine that I met through the National Association of EMS Physicians, a gentleman by the name of Bob Suter, uh, had started working at the Heart Association as their uh, national vice president uh, for the Quality and, and Health IT division, and uh, Bob and I crossed paths at uh, an NAEMSP NAMS me- meeting uh, a few years ago where I was chairing the uh, the QI committee meeting, and. Uh, Bob told me about an opportunity at the Heart Association asked me if I knew someone who might be interested. And after I thought about it overnight, I uh, called him back and said, I am. And uh, so it uh, took a while for me to kind of uh, uh, disentangle myself with uh, the uh, my, my consulting business and uh, my uh, role as the executive director for the Kent County EMS system. But uh, once I was finally able to, to work through those issues and start working part-time for the HA, got a feel for it, was able to kind of test drive it for a while, and uh, then the opportunity presented itself to go full-time, and that's how I ended up there, was uh, really through that networking contact with Dr. Suter.
2: When people think about the American Heart Association and they think about all the great CPR classes and education programs that they provide, tell us a little bit about what your responsibilities are. Yeah,
1: so one of the things that uh, the Heart Association has uh, is a a number of parts of the organization that are not part of the emergency cardiac care group, which is is really the only part of the Heart Association I was familiar with uh, before taking this job. Uh, The the ECC group is uh, the ones that uh, kind of help uh, facilitate uh, a lot of uh, the research and they publish the ACLS and BCLS guidelines and and all of us in in EMS and emergency care are very familiar with that work. But there's a whole different group at the Heart Association that's a lot newer uh, and it's focused on quality. And so this is the group that uh, uh, has uh, been doing things along the lines of hospital accreditation for their cardiovascular and stroke service lines. So there is a, a program to accredit a hospital's STEMI program and uh, one for their uh, stroke programs and their heart failure and atrial fibrillation management uh, programs, etc. cetera. Uh, one of the things that was lacking, though, was uh, a program to address systems of care, and particularly the time-sensitive high-risk uh, conditions, STEMI, cardiac arrest, stroke, Uh, specifically within the wheelhouse of the Heart Association. So uh, a program called Mission Lifeline was started, and the idea was to help facilitate uh, creating these systems of care for these high-risk time-sensitive emergencies where a systems approach would best serve the patient's interests. So considering, for example, uh, STEMI, getting... Emergency medicine to be able to activate the cath lab was an early challenge, which, you know, early on was a, a big problem. Uh, they had to wait until the cardiologist came in. Cardiologists would have to look at the 12 lead and say, yes, we're, we're going to send them to the cath lab or not. So, uh, initially getting emergency medicine and cardiology to work well together and crunch the time, uh, once that was Reasonably nailed down, then they expanded the scope of Mission Lifeline to go outside the walls of the hospital and get the 12 lead acquired in the field, and then potentially activate the cath lab from the field, which again uh, is pretty well established now in many parts of the country. Uh, but this is the the whole idea behind Mission Lifeline is how do we get the entire continuum of care from prevention and preparation for an emergency through 911 dispatch, non-transport medical first response, ambulance response, emergency department care, specialty unit care like the cardiac cardiac cath lab, stroke lab, trauma team, etc., then going into rehabilitation and chronic disease management if necessary. After that, we need a clinical system of care that stretches throughout that entire episode of care. <coughs> me, and ultimately prevents uh, medical recidivism, how do we prevent that second heart attack, that second stroke, uh, that recurrence of cardiac arrest? So that's what the Mission Lifeline Program is about, is establishing those clinical systems of care, and EMS is a part of that, uh, but it's really a much broader picture of, about that entire care continuum and making sure all of those pieces work together as seamlessly and efficiently as possible.
2: Mick, I want to thank you for joining me on Medic to Medic podcast.
1: Great. appreciate uh, the time, Steve. I uh, hope your uh, your listeners find uh, some of the reminiscing, uh, interesting, uh, uh, at least you and I did.
2: We did.